According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the scriptures, as always. Join me, if you would, in Matthew chapter 27. We have to be in all four Gospels today. Matthew 27, Mark 15, Luke 23, and John 18. So good luck turning to four places at one time in your paper Bibles. I have a a wonderful layout that I use in my Bible software where I have all four Gospels in uh, tiled across my screen. New American Standard Bible on top, the uh, Greek text underneath. Each each window is linked to the uh, appropriate text. I'll show you what that looks like here in a moment. Also, I should probably teach with my notes. I don't always teach with notes, but this kind of keeps me on track. There. That's how I normally teach. Now, I know it's too small. I don't expect you to read it. Relax. All right. But you can at least see the frames. That's what I'm talking about. So I got Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John going across the top. And then each window is tied in with um, the, the Greek text below. So when, when you scroll, uh, when you scroll the, uh, the English text, then the, uh, the Greek is going to follow. And whether you're looking at Matthew, you're looking at Mark, you're looking at Luke, or you're looking at John... 1828. The fun stuff you can do with software, and I do recommend it. All right. Let's open with a word of prayer, and then uh, we'll be ready to uh, handle trial number four. Shall we pray? Most gracious Heavenly Father, we do thank you for the truth of your word and the privilege we have this morning to assemble together. It is, uh, it is a delight, Father. It is a blessing for us day by day to walk in the light, to study to show ourselves approved, to, uh, to reap everything that you have for us, Father. Every assignment is for our blessing. And I thank you for the privilege we have to not only bear our own burdens, but to bear one another's burdens, Father, and thus fulfill the law of Christ. I thank you for the grace provision that you make in, in every circumstance. Every test has the provision designed for it. Every test has the lessons designed for it. And every test has the conclusion the victorious conclusion, the ecbasis designed for it. And Father, uh, I just thank you that we have the privilege to, uh, to be a part of, of uh, the body of Christ, Father. It is, a, it is a grace provision. We give you the thanksgiving for it. Now, Father, we commit to you our time this morning, asking for your hand and blessing upon us as we study to show ourselves approved. Open the eyes of our understanding. Give us ears to hear. We thank you, Father, in Jesus Christ's most precious and holy name. Amen. All right, we're going to combine episodes 31, 32, and 33 into a single outline. We did something similar with the first three trials. Remember, trial one was before Annas, uh, trial two was before Caiaphas, and trial three was before it was the condemnation by the entire Sanhedrin, the one that they had to wait for the sun to come up in order to uh, convene and pronounce him guilty. Uh, in between trial three and trial four, we had a bit of an interlude as we looked at Peter's three denials. 
And then we looked at the suicide of Judas Iscariot, the attempt he made to return the 30 pieces of silver uh, after the condemnation by the Sanhedrin, uh, trial number three. Uh, now the interlude's complete. We're ready now for the next uh, stage of this uh, morning. Remember, this is now Friday morning, April 3rd, 33 A.D. Uh, our Savior will be on a cross within a few short hours, and uh, he will die spiritually. He will die physically here uh, on this day, what we call Good Friday now in later centuries. Um, so episode 31 is the first appearance before Pilate. Episode 32 is Jesus before Herod. It's really a, a trial that's only recorded in one gospel. It's only recorded in the gospel of Luke. If we didn't have Luke 23 verses 8 through 12, we wouldn't even know about it, as it were. And then uh, episode 33 is uh, the second appearance before Pilate, where he is uh, finally condemned and handed over to the Romans for um, for their uh, scourging, their beating, and then the crucifixion itself. So, as far as the Gospel of Matthew is concerned, uh, really we're looking at verses 11 through 26 uh, after kind of a, a heading. At the, co- at the close of the Sanhedrin condemnation, it says in Matthew 27, 2, they bound him and led him away and delivered him to Pilate the governor. And then you have the interlude here in uh, 3 through 10, where uh, Judas tries to return the money. So we really pick up the story in verse 11. So in Matthew 27, it's 11 through 26. And you, you break, you know, the break comes between verse 14 and verse 15, um, where we have to uh, break away for uh, the trial uh, in front of Herod. But as you're looking at Matthew 27, there's really no indication that there is a gap there, is there? So let's look at it. Matthew 27, verse 11. Now Jesus stood before the governor, and the governor questioned him, saying, Are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus said to him, As you say, or it is as you say. And while he was being accused by the chief priests and elders, he did not answer. Then Pilate said to him, Do you not hear how many things they testify against you? And he did not answer him with regard to even a single charge. So the governor was quite amazed. Now that's where we're going to stop with respect to the first trial before Herod. When we get to verse 15, we start to get into the retrial. We start to get into the second appearance before Herod after he comes back from um, from Herod. And you'll, you'll notice very quickly uh, that it's all very consistent in all the gospel accounts. Uh, in verse 15 and following, now at the feast, the governor was accustomed to release for the people any one prisoner whom they wanted. So the attempt to do a, a prisoner release, uh, the attempt to release Jesus on this Passover prisoner release program uh, is going to fall short. But every gospel records it in the second part of uh, Pontius's uh of uh, Pilate's proceedings here. So uh, it's, it's going to be consistent that we're going to see each time through. So that's why on the screen you got the scripture references. I went ahead and listed each line as associated with each event. All right. That way we don't, we don't muddle things. So that top line there that includes Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John references, you see how that's connected to episode 31? Okay. I'll try not to be too complicated. Episode 31 is that top line. Episode 32 is the middle line. It's only the Gospel of Luke, Luke 23, verses 8 through 12. And then the bottom line is episode 33, the second appearance before Pilate. And uh, you see it there. Again, all four Gospels. 
all four Gospels. There's only really a handful of events that are recorded in all four Gospels, right? The the uh, the feeding of the five thousand. The the uh, um, there's not many that are recorded by all four Gospels. Okay, and off the top of my head, I'm not thinking of any more. Uh, but there's only a handful. This one, all right. The trial before Pilate, the crucifixion, okay, and uh, maybe a couple more. All right. So let's turn over. Now we've seen what we're going to see here out of the Matthew record. Um, pretty straightforward. I mean, when you're looking at 11 through 14, there's not a lot there. Uh, he stands before the governor. The governor questions, saying, are you the king of the Jews? Now, that might strike us as an awkward first question, right, or an awkward leading question. Uh, we'll get the explanation for why that was really the prime Questioning by uh, by Pilate here. By the time we look at Luke's record and John's record, we understand how kingship is uh, is center stage. So uh, let's go next to Mark. We'll find that uh, this will likewise be very uh, identical to what we just read in Matthew, Mark 15. And really, it's verses 1 through 15 to cover both parts of Pilate's trial. Uh, the break comes after verse 5. So when you, when you divide it, you got 1 through 5, verses 6 through 15. So Mark 15, we're told early in the morning. Uh, yeah, like right after sunup. <laughs> okay. Because remember, the sun came up and they pronounced him guilty and then they sent him packing off to, uh, to Pilate. Early in the morning, the chief priests with the elders and the scribes and the whole council immediately held a consultation and binding Jesus, they led him away and delivered Pilate. Heard that, or why Pilate cared about that. Uh, why is this question number one in, uh, in Pilate's trial? I thought uh, when he was convicted, he was convicted of blasphemy. He was convicted of claiming to be God. All right. Well, Pilate doesn't have any concern about the Jewish charges of blasphemy. His char uh, Pilate's concern is political. Pilate's concern is related to rebellion against Rome and things of that nature. So Pilate questioned him, are you king of the Jews? And he answered, as you say, or you say. The chief priest began to accuse him harshly. Then Pilate questioned him again, saying, do you not answer? See how many charges they bring against you. So similar to what we had in Matthew, the first item is the claim of kingship. The second item is to answer specifically the charges that the uh, that the uh, chief priests were bringing. And in both Matthew and Mark, we see almost identical records. Jesus answers the claim of kingship with, as you say. But he doesn't say a word about any of the charges or accusations that these slanderers are, uh, are uh, coming up with. So do you not answer? See how many charges they bring against you. But Jesus made no further answer. So Pilate was amazed. And as I said, that's where the break is best to understand because when we get into 6 through 15, we start dealing with the, uh, the, pa uh, the Passover prisoner release program and um, the uh, effort the pilot makes and then the demands of the crowd to, uh, to release Barabbas instead of releasing Jesus. That'll be in part uh, 2, the second appearance before Pilate. Now we get over to Luke, Luke 23. And thankfully, we have Luke, and we have uh, the uh, the interlude where the prisoner is taken to a different court, <laughs> different building, not not too far away in Jerusalem. We expect that uh, 
Herod would not have been staying in the Praetorium, but he would have been probably in that same district or that same neighborhood of Jerusalem, likely. Uh, so Luke 23, 1 through 15, or I'm sorry, 1 through, uh, notice, 1 through 25. 1 through 25, a lot of material in the Gospel of Luke. Uh, the break comes uh, because verses 8 through 12 gives us the interlude, and this is what helps us to divide where Matthew and Mark should be divided as well. Um, looking at Luke 23, we got verses 1 through 7, and then uh, where he gets sent off to Herod in verses 8 through 12, and then where he's back before Pilate again in 13 through 25. And once again, this is the... Uh, this is the uh, attempted prisoner release opportunity here. All right, uh, so let's stick with 1 through 7. The whole body of them got up and brought him before Pilate, and they began to accuse him, saying... Now, here we got a little bit of detail before we get to the are you a king question in verse 3. And so they began to accuse him, saying, We found this man misleading our nation, forbidding to pay taxes to Caesar, and saying that he himself is Christ, a king. So Pilate asked him, saying, Are you the king of the Jews? So this is where the are you the king question came in. And it's interesting, uh, misleading our nation, Pilate doesn't care about that. <laughs> you know, you're the light of the Jews, go ahead. You know, Rome doesn't care. Um, forbidding to pay taxes to Caesar, now that is an issue that needs to be dealt with. Um, but, um, you know, Rome, Rome collected their taxes, okay? Because Rome had agents to collect their taxes. And if the taxes weren't paid, the agents got dealt with. So uh, that's, that's not really such a, a thing to be worked up over. But claiming to be Christ a king, that gets his attention. Because there have been previous messianic claimants. There have been previous uh, messiah uh, wannabes they generally gather disciples, gather soldiers, they stage revolts, and they have to be put down. And that does gather Pilate's attention. And so, uh, misleading the nation, forbidding to pay taxes, which he didn't do, um, and saying that he himself is Christ a king, that's what sparks this first question then. So Pilate asked him, saying, are you king of the Jews? And he answered him and said, as you say. Then Pilate said to the chief priests and the crowds, I find no guilt in this man. All right. Um, it's not a matter for his uh, conviction related to that. He's not on trial. There's no Roman charges um, that, uh, that the Lord has violated in any way. But they kept on insisting, saying he stirs up the people, teaching all over Judea, starting from Galilee, even as far as this place. And as soon as they mention Galilee, Judah, uh, Pilate goes, aha. When Pilate heard it, he asked whether the man was a Galilean. And when he heard that he belonged to Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him to Herod, who himself also was in Jerusalem at that time. Remember, this is Passover season. A lot of pilgrims are coming, and a lot of even non-pilgrims are coming uh, because of uh, the various things going on. All right, so now he's got a way to uh, hopefully get out of this uh, pickle. He can just hand off the prisoner to Herod and be done with it. Uh, we'll talk about some of the other motivation that he might have as well, uh, because Pilate and Herod didn't get along very well. In fact, they hated each other. Um, and so it may be that this is a bit of a peace offering on Pilate's part, saying, here you go, um, 
uh, I don't want to step on your toes. Uh, you know, this is one of your guys. You know, you'll have to deal with it. And uh, as a peace offering, then maybe perhaps it'll be a, a way to uh, to uh, patch things up. And we actually, when we get down to verse 12, we see that's exactly what happens. They become good buddies after uh, after this episode. Okay. Finally, then let's uh, look at our final gospel account, the Gospel of John, chapter 18. Again, it's broken up into two segments. Uh, we don't have the Herod interlude to break it up for us. But also, notice how long this is. This is even longer than Luke's record. You've got 11 verses to start with in verses 28 through 38. And then you have, from, eight, from verse 39, 18-39, all the way crossing into chapter 19, and all the way into verse 16, uh, by the time uh, Pilate hands him over to be crucified. So there's a lot of material in the Gospel of John. Material that's not found in the synoptic accounts. Material that, as we've seen time and time again through seven years of studying the uh, Life of Christ Harmonies, that uh, the, the synoptics, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, will, will paint a pretty consistent picture. That's why they're called synoptic. Okay, Their optics are synchronized. So they're called the synoptic Gospels because the view they, they give is fairly consistent. But then now, decades later, um, John writes the final gospel account and starts to give more of the details that weren't recorded in the previous gospel records. And that's what we see here. So, uh, let's take a look at these 11 verses then. And uh, I'm not surprised, by the way, as early as this is... Uh, that Pilate is prepared, that he's awake, that he's, he's ready to step out on his porch. Uh, in fact, they won't come in. He has to step out to meet them outside the praetorium. Um, and I'm not surprised that he's up this early because, remember, after the Roman soldiers, the cohort, arrested Jesus, they took him to Annas, and then we never saw any Roman guards after that. The Romans disappeared in that episode. It was all strictly Jewish through uh, Annas' trial, through Caiaphas' trial, through the Sanhedrin gathering. So I suspect what happened is that the cohort, after they dropped Jesus off, they went and reported to Pilate. And the whole Praetorian um, facility was then put on alert that the, uh, the Sanhedrin was, uh, was up to something. <laughs> All right? And any time the Romans got a whiff that the Sanhedrin was up to something, they, uh, they went on alert. They got their soldiers ready and were ready to, to put something down if they had to. So reading in John 18, verse 28 says, They led Jesus from Caiaphas into the praetorium, and it was early, and they themselves did not enter into the praetorium, so that they would not be defiled, but might eat the Passover. Okay? <laughs> I'm sorry. I just, I, I laugh because it's so twisted. It's so, it's so satanic, you know? It's like the whole, oh, we can't accept that blood money uh, legalism, right? It's just this, this ex external holiness like, oh, watch us. We're so righteous and we're, we're so good. We, we would never accept blood money in our temple treasuries, okay? While at the same time, those, those lying maggots were the ones that paid the uh, blood money to start with, okay? Same thing here. Oh, we don't want to cross into the pra praetorium. If we, if we crossed into there, then we would be unsanctified. We would, remove, we would lose our ceremonial purity. And we would then be ineligible to, to eat Passover. All right. There is a conundrum with this. And so far, no one's asked me. So maybe I shouldn't even bring it up and you won't care. Bring it up. 
Um, and I'm not sure when I'm going to teach it, really. Um, but um, there is a bit of a conundrum because they're, they're all worked up about uh, getting ready for Passover and eating Passover that night. Okay, that Friday, that Friday night. This is Friday morning, and they don't want to—they don't want to cross the uh, into the Praetorium and defile themselves because they've got Passover coming up uh, that afternoon, that evening, right? The, and but wait a minute—I thought Jesus and his disciples ate Passover last night, Thursday night. Okay, so that's the conundrum. Then people ask, "Well, what's up? You know, what, what is it? It was a Thursday or Friday? Which which day was Nisan 14?" Which day, because Passover has to be eaten on Nisan 14. The lamb is selected on Nisan 10, and the lamb is eaten on Nisan 14. See, that's why Jesus entered into Jerusalem Palm Monday when the lamb is selected, and why he was crucified on Nisan 14 on, uh, on Passover. Christ our Passover has been crucified. But it seems like we got back-to-back Passover dates, Thursday and Friday. And so we have a puzzle. Okay, one that has bothered um, Bible scholars for 2,000 years. <laughs> All right, but one that has a solution, by the way. And so at some point, um, I'll let you chew on it for a week or two. And then, uh, <laughs> and then uh, remember, there's no class next week. And then uh, in a couple of weeks, if you haven't figured it out yet, then uh, no, I, I may say something. Uh, we'll discuss that. Yeah, I don't believe it is, but some people think so. Yeah, there's two two leading ideas for where Herod, uh, for where Pilate lived. Um, the Praetorium is basically the headquarters of the of the Praetor, the headquarters of the Roman governor, uh, and uh, often it's thought of as being the Antonian Fortress on the northwest corner of the Temple Complex, or the the more common view, and, and I think the more likely view, is that it was actually the uh, palace of the former Herod, of Herod the Great, who had a residence uh, on the western uh, hill uh, in the Tyropenean Valley that's on the western side of town. So I think that's more likely, but um, the text itself doesn't tell us. All right, so these holy guys... Um, they led Jesus from Caiaphas into the praetorium, and it was early. And they themselves did not enter into the praetorium so that they would not be defiled, but might eat the Passover. Okay, So you could have all the external purity in the world and still have the ugliness of murder in your soul. Okay, And that's, that ought to teach you something right there about people that have external phoniness uh, about their church attendance or their giving or whatever they're doing, uh, nodding to God and making a big show of it when their heart is as filthy as, uh, as these guys. So therefore, Pilate went out to them and said, what accusation do you bring against this man? Okay. And just like in the Gospel of Luke, we start to get information about what those accusations were, which impelled him to go inside and say, are you king of the Jews? So Pilate went out to them and said, what accusation do you bring against this guy? What is, what is your accusation? And I like that because we know who the accuser is, right? <laughs> we understand what the accusation activity is all about. We're not here to accuse one another. Nor are we here excusing one another, okay? And so they answered and said to him, If this man were not an evildoer, we would not have delivered him to you. How's that for an answer? <laughs> right? Charge? Well, we need a charge? What are you talking about? We don't need a charge. He's an evildoer. 
You know, if it wasn't an evildoer, we wouldn't be here. <laughs> you actually want to charge? Okay. I find that interesting. So Pilate then said to him, well, then take him yourself. He's an evildoer. You guys have a court. You guys have a, you are a court. You guys have a Sanhedrin. You guys have officers. You can levy fines. You can, uh, you can uh, issue punishments. Even uh, 39 lashes. Okay. But they're not allowed to kill, and that's the problem. And that's why they are not content with trying him with the conviction they've already received in their own court. They've already done that. And so, um, he said, Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and judge him according to your law. The Jews said to him, We are not permitted to put anyone to death. And verse 32 is remarkable. To fulfill the word of Jesus, which he spoke, signifying by what kind of death he was about to die. You know, even if the Romans had permitted them, even if the Romans, a pilot would have said, well, okay, in this case, fine, I'll give you, I'll, I'll look the other way and you can, you can, uh, ex you can uh, achieve your, your capital punishment maneuver. The, the problem is, is that the Jewish method of capital punishment is stoning. Right? And would stoning have achieved our redemption? Would stoning have fulfilled the prophecies? Would stoning have, have proven our Savior correct when he said that he would be crucified? All right, and so it's interesting. They uh, and they're very—they uh, don't ask him to waive the requirement, and I don't believe he would anyway, even if they did ask him. They don't—they uh, don't ask for it, and they really don't want him to. These these evildoers, these these religious leaders, they want him crucified. They want him publicly identified as a criminal. All right. Interestingly enough, they convicted him as a blasphemer. But they want him crucified as a criminal. And uh, it is, it's an interesting motivation and, and perhaps something that, that I think speaks more to the nature of satanic uh, philosophy. The way that they look at things not only as right and wrong, but as uh, the things that disagree with them have to be punished. Anybody that stands in their way has to be not only taken out of the way, but has to be absolutely punished where no one else will attempt to do what, what that person did. Okay? Didn't mean to point, sorry. <laughs> All right. And it's, uh, it is remarkable. It is remarkable. So, uh, to fulfill the word of Jesus which he spoke, signifying by what kind of death he was about to die. And I love this. This is like, the, here's Judas returning the 30 pieces of silver, and you got all kinds of wickedness by all kinds of characters, but God's prophecies are being fulfilled. So God is being glorified in all of this. Same thing here. All kinds of wickedness by all kinds of unbelievers, but God's prophecies are being fulfilled, so God is being glorified, even in, even in these terrible, terrible things. So therefore Pilate entered again into the praetorium and summoned Jesus and said to him, are you the king of the Jews? All right. So between Luke's account and John's account, we have much more of the background, the interchange between Pilate and the religious leaders that, have, that gives him what he needs to know, gives Pilate what he needs to know in order to go in and interrogate Jesus. All right. And it's, it's interesting. I'm going to give you some historical background on Pilate. We know a lot about Pilate from Josephus, from Philo, from other historical sources. Uh, Pilate's an ugly guy. Pilate is not a nice guy. And it's, I, I think it's important that we know that because otherwise, if, if we're limited, 
if all we know about Pilate is what we see here, we might start to feel kind of sympathetic towards him. He kind of seems like he's not all that at fault, or that he, you know, he's trying to let Jesus go, and his wife wants him to let him go. And we see some other things about Pilate that uh, we might say, okay, he's not such a bad guy. All right, not the case. And when you when you understand the the uh, the other historical information related to Pilate, you understand uh, he was really a villain in a lot of ways, and um, that's uh, that's significant also. So, uh, are you king of the Jews? Now, in the synoptic accounts, what has the Lord's simple answer been every time? As you say, it is as you say, or you say, yeah, literally, you say, okay. Um, here, though, the interchange is a bit more comprehensive than that. I love the way that uh, in the Mel Gibson movie that Jesus started speaking to him in Latin, you know, which was kind of an interesting little quirk. Um, I don't know if Jesus knew Latin or not, but it was just kind of a cute little thing in the movie. Um, so Jesus answered, are you saying this on your own initiative or did others tell you about me? Did others tell you about me? And it's kind of interesting. What do you know about me? What have you heard? Right? You ever wonder, how did Jesus evangelize? <laughs> right? You know, it's like the old Stephen Wright joke from years ago. Um, you know, when, when George Washington was asked for his ID, did he pull out a quarter? You know? Um, you know, when we, when we give the gospel, or when we ask somebody, do you know Jesus? Okay, well, what did Jesus say? What do you know about me? Or what have you been told about me? Kind of interesting. Anyway, are you saying this on your own initiative or did others tell you about me? And Pilate answered, I'm not a Jew, am I? Your own nation and the chief priest delivered you to me. What have you done? <laughs> no, he's not a Jew. He's actually very anti-Semitic. And he's a, he and uh, the fellow down in Egypt, there's two governors side by side, and uh, there's Pilate here, and then there's this other fellow in Egypt, and they're both protégés of uh, this other fellow that's absolutely, absolutely um, hostile to all Jewish people, um, good friends of Tiberius Caesar back in Rome, and part of why um, all this is, uh, is so significant. All right, I'm not a Jew, am I? How insulting. Your nation and the chief priest delivered you to me, betrayed you to me, what have you done? <laughs> okay. And uh, he has no problem killing Jesus. That's, that's you know, he, he kills people all the time. Uh, but whatever Jesus has done that angered the uh, Sanhedrin, Pilate wants to know about it. He doesn't want an angry Sanhedrin. Okay. He wants a compliant Sanhedrin. He wants, uh, he wants a Sanhedrin he can work with. Because if they're all angry and all up in arms, then he may have to deal with them. May have to fire that high priest. May have to prop up another puppet in there to, to handle things. So Jesus answered, my kingdom is not of this world. So it's kind of interesting. He doesn't answer the what have you done question. My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then my servants would be fighting so that I would not be handed over to the Jews. But as it is, my kingdom is not from here. My kingdom is not of this realm. Um... So therefore, Pilate said to him, so you are a king. <laughs> That's what he got out of it. You know, this whole cosmos thing and realm and servants and all that. He didn't really care. Um, you are a king. And Jesus answered, you say. 
It's almost identical language. So you say, you say correctly that I am a king. For this I have been born, and for this I have come into the world. Both sides. A child will be born to us, a son will be given to us. Okay. For this I have been born, for this I have come into the world, to testify to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. He's the king of truth. So Pilate then said to him, what is truth? A good 21st century American postmodern kind of guy. <laughs> All right. I think it just shows you that nothing's new under the sun and all these ridiculous postmodern types are just recycling some old philosophies anyway. So what is truth? And when he had said this, he went out again to the Jews and said to them, I find no guilt in him. Not guilty. So just like in Luke, the pronouncement is not guilty. So also John records not guilty. Matthew and Mark do not record that, but Luke and John do. So this ends the first proceeding. Now there will be a gap, and this is where the gap comes in. Um, when he, starting in verse 39, when he starts to do the uh, Passover prisoner uh, program, release program. What should I call this? The Passover prisoner parole program. How about that? Make it all peace. Pontius Pilate's, Pontius Pilate's Passover prisoner parole program. But the, uh, the priests poo-pooed that. All right. Let's get off of slide one, shall we? Now you understand, there's a lot to cover. And, uh, and this is just with the first trial. And then we're going to get to Herod. And then we're going to come back to Pilate and some of these other things. So point one, Pilate opened his court for the morning with a question for the religious leaders. Pilate opened his court for the morning with a question for the religious leaders. And I expect he wanted answers. Wanted answers for why his cohort was out past midnight. <laughs> right? Um, he wants answers and, and he wants them now. Point one. Pilate opened his court for the morning, with a question for the religious leaders. And this is fairly common, actually. It was, a, it was a Roman practice. Each day would start like this. Each day would start where each um, client, uh, or each lord, would then have their clients come, and, um, not lord, lord's the wrong word, but you would, have, uh, you would have Romans that would have other Romans serving them. And the junior always had a report to the senior, is how this would work. It was always the first order of business. That's why if you were a junior, you were up extra early. <laughs> because you were at his door when he got up. And when he got up and was ready to, for business, then the slave would open the door and the, the first of the clients would start coming in. And the clients would come in based on their own precedence, the most important first. That way they weren't kept waiting as long. And so forth. And it was all about achieving um, higher status by who you were attached to in different ways. So Pilate's ready to open his doors, and uh, the first client to appear is the high priest. It is the, uh, the uh, Sanhedrin officials here. Again, it's verses 28 through 32 of John 18. Uh, what accusations do you bring against this man? Pontius Pilate ruled as governor from 26 to 36 A.D., 
Pontius Pilate ruled as governor from 26 to 36 A.D. Um, there's a wonderful grace note study on Pontius Pilate, by the way. I made a little note uh, yesterday on the Facebook group. If you're not a part of that, then um, I can send you an email with a copy of that, or you can get it yourself off of gracenotes.info. Uh, it's in the topical library under Pontius Pilate. Um, there's also a good article in the Wycliffe Bible Encyclopedia, which I refer to constantly. It's one of my uh, top-of-the-charts go-to Bible uh, encyclopedias. Pontius Pilate ruled as governor from 26 to 36 A.D. Some background on Pontius. This, by the way, is an inscription found at Caesarea that mentions Pilate. Got some Latin inscription on that stone. Do you want a larger? All right, called a governor. In the Greek, it's hegemon. Uh, he's got actually several different titles, and they're not always consistent with each other in the biblical and non-biblical um, places. The Hegemon, governor of Judea in the New Testament, and once in Josephus, Josephus Antiquities. Josephus also refers to him as an epitropos. Depending on whether you're reading the Antiquities of the Jews or you're reading the Wars of the Jews, uh, Josephus, uh, when he references Pontius, calls him by two different titles. As does Philo, embassy to Gaius 38, if you ever want to read your Philo. Uh, the latter Greek term served as the equivalent of the official Roman title procurator, the procurator, where you would have that expression uh, in antiquities and in wars both. The Latin term procurator is applied to Pilate by the Roman historian Tacitus in his annals. Again, there's the reference if you want to read Tacitus, uh, volume 15, section 44. Another title, prefect, prefectus, is now attested by an inscription found at Caesarea, in 1961, that's when it was found, it wasn't written then, <laughs> yeah, that speaks of Pontius Pilate, the prefect of Judea. Okay? Now, that sparked some debate because a prefect is not a procurator. And those are different ranks according to the Roman system. And the Romans were very clear on, on the amount of imperium, the amount of authority that, a, that a, an official would have. Uh, based upon their title, how many lictors they were entitled to walk before them, uh, how many uh, uh, axes in there, or how many rods in their, in their uh, uh, device that the lictors would carry before them, and so forth. Uh, in any event, so that has sparked some, uh, some discussion as far as whether those terms uh, is right or wrong to interchange those terms or not. And some people that try to, to insist that it's wrong to interchange those terms, then, you know, will use that basis to be critical of the Bible record. I, I don't think it's really, I think it's much ado about nothing, to be honest. There's no evidence of any difference in meaning among these terms. The new inscription may simply indicate that the terminology for such offices was not as technical as has been uh, supposed. Pilate assumed his office in AD 26 during the reign of Tiberius Caesar. At about this time, uh, this fellow named Sejanus, I was mentioning earlier, a notorious anti-Semite, had considerable influence with the emperor. Philo indicates that Sejanus was dedicated to the obliteration of the Jewish people. And again, this is Philo and his uh, embassy to Gaius, which we referenced earlier. We referenced uh, section 38 earlier. Now this is section 24 in the embassy to Gaius. 
also recorded by Eusebius in his ecclesiastical history. The policies of Pilate and his contemporary Flaccus, procurator of Egypt, suggest that they shared Sejanus' anti-Semitic viewpoint and may have even been his protégés. And uh, I won't take the time, but I do have the complete works of Philo in my Bible software, and we can look this up. We can look up uh, his work on Flaccus, uh, both in an English translation and the Greek text. Pilate's uh, procuratorship consisted largely of a series of provocations against the Jews. Right? That's why we understand why he's so concerned on this particular morning. Why was this cohort out past midnight last night? What's going on? Uh, they don't want to enter into the praetorium? Fine, I'll go out and meet them. I want to find out what's going on at this uh, Passover season. And uh, he had had a number of episodes against the Jews. Um, first, he broke with the custom of former procurators by bringing into Jerusalem ensigns that bore the image of Caesar. He's the fifth of the governors that has been ruling over Judea. Okay? And a lot of the, the transition took place after the death of Herod the Great, um, when Jesus was a baby in Egypt. After Herod the Great died, Rome did not allow uh, Herod's son, any of Herod's sons, to have the whole package that Herod had. They broke it up into four parts. And, and so you have uh, Herod the Tetrarch, for example, that, that we see in trial, this next trial. He, he only had part of his father's former kingdom. Uh, another Herod, uh, Archelaus, had another part. Uh, Herod Philip had another part. And then it was broken down into four parts. And then after a while, because Herod Archelaus was kind of a lunatic, they, uh, <laughs> when, when he was done, they, the Romans said, all right, we're going to put a, a procurator in. We're going to put a Roman official in, someone that's accountable to Caesar. Okay? If you ever study the Roman political structures, sometimes there were uh, imperial provinces that answered to Caesar, and sometimes there were senatorial provinces that answered to the Senate. Uh, this is an imperial province that's going to answer to Caesar. It's really an imperial territory. The province uh, actually was headquartered out of Damascus. It was the province of Syria. All right. So uh, that's why we have governors now instead of, you know, a king or, or a client king, something like that. And uh, that's why you can still have Herod as a king, Herod Antipas as king in, uh, in uh, Judea. Herod the Tetrarch is a, is, a, is a Herodian king in Judea, but we have a Roman governor, I'm sorry, in Galilee, we have a Roman governor in, uh, in Judea. And Herod's the fifth, Pilate is the fifth of these governors. All right, I should slow down and quit misspeaking. All right. So first he broke with the custom of former procurators by bringing into Jerusalem ensigns that bore the image of Caesar. The four that preceded Herod would still bring in Roman ensigns. They would bring in Roman banners, flags as it were. But they made sure that they were, uh, all they had was the, the lettering, the SPQR lettering. Uh, they didn't have the actual image of Caesar because they were sensitive to the idolatry accusations. Pilate didn't care. No sensitivity at all. You know, tough. They got to deal with it. <laughs> right? Uh, this was a deliberate offense against the Jewish law, and when the people petitioned for the removal of the effigies, Pilate surrounded them with his soldiers, threatened immediate death. And uh, you can read about this in Josephus. It tells how the Jews threw themselves to the ground, showed their willingness to die rather than transgress the law. You know, Pilate said, take it or leave it, and if you don't like it, I'll kill you. And they laid down and said, okay, kill us. And they called Pilate's bluff, and he's like, hmm, okay. <laughs> 
He was so impressed by their zeal that he ordered the ensigns to be removed and taken to his headquarters at Caesarea. That was out on the coast. Uh, and really, that's where he lived most of the time. He would only come up to Jerusalem as necessary during the pilgrimage months when uh, there was a need to keep strict discipline and order uh, in Jerusalem itself. His basically callous attitude to the Jewish religion did not change. Philo also talks about an incident with golden shields. If you want to read that in Embassy Section 38. The next clash came when Pilate appropriated the funds of the temple treasury to construct an aqueduct. He says, we need to build an aqueduct, and I'm not going to pay for it. You got, you got loot in the treasury. Let's use that. <laughs> Again, the populace protested. Disguised as civilians, Pilate's soldiers wrought havoc among the multitudes that had gathered, killing many unarmed Jews with concealed weapons. Now, it's interesting, that's uh, also recorded in Josephus, and both in his Antiquities and his Wars. Okay. Then a third episode in the Gospel of Luke. Look back to Luke 13. And this is an episode that's not recorded in Josephus. It is recorded in Scripture, and it may provide us an insight into why Pilate and Herod were at odds. Because in the next clash, a whole bunch of folks that Pilate killed turned out to be Galileans. Luke 13.1, on the same occasion, there were some present who reported to him about the Galileans, whose blood Pilate had mixed with their sacrifices. And Jesus said to them, Do you suppose that these Galileans were greater sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered this fate? I tell you, no. And he goes on, he's going to use that episode to teach a, to teach a lesson and uh, different things. We've taught that already, actually, in the Life of Christ series. But this episode with Galileans that he executed, mingling their blood with their sacrifices, uh, may have been the... the uh, episode that caused such friction between him and Herod. Herod may have absolutely been livid over that, over uh, the fact those are my citizens. And how dare you uh, execute my citizens? Part of the uh, power plays between Galilee and Judea. This incident, unrecorded in Josephus, nevertheless coincides with what we know of Pilate from that historian. The personality uh, traits match up. Now, after the Bible record... Pilate's removal from office was brought about by a similar outrage. Why is it that we see later on, for, exa for example, in the book of Acts, we have Festus and we have Felix and we've got different governors around that Paul has to answer to in his trials. Uh, whatever happened to Pilate? How did, you know, how did Pilate go away? Where did, the, you know, where did Felix and Festus come from? Uh, Pilate's removal from office was brought about by a similar outrage, this time against the Samaritans. Pilate heard that a group of them were planning to gather on their holy mountain to, to view some sacred vessels allegedly put there by Moses. He sent his troops to ambush them, killing or capturing some and putting others to flight. The Samaritans promptly appealed to Vitellius, the, le the legate of Syria, uh, who ordered Pilate to Rome to give an account of his actions to the emperor. This was the end of Pilate's procuratorship. Nothing is known of his subsequent career. A later tradition of uncertain value states that he committed suicide. Again, it's uncertain value. I think it's less than uncertain. I think it's kind of hokey. Uh, but, you know, it matches up well with Judas Iscariot and his suicide. And, and there's a certain amount of karma, I suppose, <laughs> if I can use that term in a Christian setting. Uh, but it's kind of the way Eusebius would, would, would view it. You know, Judas killed himself. Pilate killed himself. Everything comes full circle. 
Finally, attributes to Herod Agrippa a summary description of Pilate as, so he's quoting Herod, as describing Pilate as being naturally inflexible, a blend of self-will and relentlessness. A blend of self-will and relentlessness. Now, some have had trouble with that, though, and said, well, if he's really a stiff-necked, hard-nosed kind of guy, why is he bending over backwards to try to release Jesus? Why does he seem so flexible in the gospel records? In light of this background, Pilate's weakness and vacillation in the trial of Jesus and his willingness to please the Jews hardly seems to be in character. However, and I agree with what's said here, the reason may be that he already felt his own position to be in danger. If he's already rocky with Rome, then that's going to trump everything else. And he can be ugly and stiff-necked and, and uh, brutal as whatever with respect to the Jews, but he answers to Caesar. And if he's in trouble back home, then he may be walking on eggshells. There are hints in Philo that Sejanus may have come to a bad end. And that after his death, Tiberius took strong measures against any repressive anti-Semitism in the empire. And uh, so little hints of this, both in Philo's work on uh, titled Embassy, and as well as Flaccus. The statement of the Jews to Pilate in 1922. Let's look down to that, John 19.22. This is towards the end of the second trial before Pilate. And... Uh, the Jews almost threaten him here, which is kind of interesting. Um, in verse 12, 1912, Pilate made efforts to release him, but the Jews cried out, saying, If you release this man, you are no friend of Caesar. Everyone who makes himself out to be king opposes Caesar. Uh-oh. <laughs> See, that's a threat. And if they got connections in Rome, and the Sanhedrin certainly did, then Tiberius would come to hear about this. All right. So if, uh, if Pilate was afraid of losing his, losing his office, losing his status as the uh, friend of Caesar, then uh, that could very much have influenced what, what uh, happens here. So fear of such consequences could have transformed the inflexible Pilate into the double-minded person set forth in the Gospels. But even in the precarious situation, Pilate the anti-Semite could not resist a final cut at his enemies, the ironic, the ironic inscription over the cross. And they begged him, don't write that, don't write that. And he said, I wrote what I wrote. Right? Deal with it. <laughs> and he writes it in Latin, Greek, and Hebrew. King of the Jews. The inscription over Jesus on the cross. All right. There's more. Um, it's a long article. All right. And as I said, um, there is a Grace Notes article as well. And if uh, you're not part of the Facebook group and you didn't see that link uh, and you have trouble finding it on the Grace Notes website, then uh, just send me an email and I will, uh, I will send that to you. The religious leaders, point B, the religious leaders remained fastidiously observant of their traditions. The religious leaders remained fastidiously observant of their traditions, insisting on ritual purity, even while achieving an unrighteous murder. Insisting on ritual purity, 
even while achieving an unrighteous murder. Ritual purity. Okay? And we, we've spoken about this before, but it's always good to remind ourselves um, because it's not something that's really featured in the church age. Uh, our, our ritual is our reality when it comes to confessing our sins and being restored to fellowship. And if we're unclean, uh, in reality, we're unclean because we're carnal. We're walking in darkness. We're, we're, not, we're being controlled by the flesh. We're not in fellowship. We're not being uh, controlled by the Holy Spirit. The uh, Israel, on the other hand, in their stewardship, was focused on externals. In their externals, they were painting pictures of a reality, but you could have the external fine and dandy totally at odds with an internal reality that was dark as, as the night. And, uh, and also, their system was not always wrapped up in sin versus non-sin, right? Or in fellowship versus out of fellowship. We, we, you and I think of as spiritual or carnal. Uh, it was not always the case. Uh, there, were, there, were, there were normal everyday activities that could take place that would make you ceremonially unclean. I mean, what's, what's sinful about walking in the praetorium? Well, the location and, and the, the idolatry of that location meant that it was not appropriate. How about childbirth would leave you unclean? The, 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 the monthly menstruation cycle would leave a woman unclean. Uh, not that she was carnal. I mean, she wasn't out of fellowship. Even marital relations, husband and wife marital relations, would leave you unclean. And you'd have to be purified until, you know, ritually purified. All right? And the ritual purification was not so much hygienic as it was ceremonial. It was ritual. It was an external identification that we are a holy people. The Jews are a separate people. And so uh, a burial, touching a corpse, would leave you ceremonially unclean. So, you know, if you're... If you're family member died last week or your family member died and, and, and you were the one responsible for um, the disposal of the remains or, or what have you, the burial, well then, if it was Passover season, this is a Passover you're not going to partake in. Or Pentecost or Booths or any of the other holy days, the Day of Atonement. Okay? Uh, you are not ceremonially clean. So you sit this one out. Okay. Now, that's, that's if you care, <laughs> right? On, on a population basis, how many actually observed this stuff all the time anyway? You had a significant number of folks that, that uh, were just non-observant, didn't really care to them. They never paid much attention to their clean, unclean status, um, went really high on their, on their uh, agenda. And, uh, and as such, the uh, Pharisees called them sinners, and they're consistently referred to in the gospel as sinners. Okay? So, uh, this is, I guess we'll pick up here. The religious leaders remained fastidiously observant of their traditions um, because their only accusation is that he's an evildoer. Well, sign us all up. Okay? Right? Which one of us is without sin? Their only accusation was that Jesus was an evildoer. He's a bad guy. Take our word for it. Right? He's a really, really, really bad guy. He needs to die. When that's not sufficient, then they start adding things, but they start with this. And we'll pick up on this in two weeks. Uh, there is a visual. I'll leave you with that. 
close those. Close all these. Here we go. There is a um, a diagram here. There we go. Lewis asked the question earlier, um, is the Praetorium the same as Antonia's fortress? Okay. Now this was, uh, Herod, Herod the Great built most of this during his lifetime, uh, including the, uh, the remodel enlargements to the temple itself. He also put a, a tower here, a guard tower, a fortress on the northwest corner of the Temple Mount itself called Antonia's Fortress. And uh, this is a leading candidate I, I dismiss it, most do. It's the second option for the Praetorium. Um, I think the better option is over here on the western side of town called Herod's Fortress. And it's even labeled Praetorium there on this diagram. Herod's Palace, Herod's Bema. Okay? We talk about our own Bema we have coming up. Well, Pilate would sit on his own Bema here. Also, there was a prison, the Tower of Mariamne and kind of a, a trinity, uh, a uh, triangle of, of towers that forms a pretty good defensive vantage point in which to, uh, to rain arrows down on whatever rebellious uh, mobs might be forming out there. Anyway, uh, we also suspect, it's good to have this graphic available because we also suspect that wherever Herod was staying, Herod Antipas was staying, uh, would have been in this upper city as well, would have been in the, the wealthy part of town. So uh, when, when Pilate dismisses or suspends his trial and sends Jesus off to Herod, it was probably just a matter of a few streets over, uh, maybe even closer than that. So it could have been just a five-minute walk, and, and the, the soldiers could have had Jesus at uh, whatever residence that uh, Herod the Tetrarch. I know there's too many Herods. <laughs> Herod's palace refers to the dead guy, Herod the Great. All right, well, we'll pick this up, not next week, but two weeks from today, Lord willing, rapture pending. Father, thank you for truth. Thank you for the opportunity we have to study these these uh, passages. I ask for uh, your hand of blessing upon all that we evaluate. Uh, help us to see, Father, if we're, if we're the hypocrites these guys are. We have an external show of godliness, but inside we're planning murder. Father, uh, make that clear to us so that we worship you in spirit and in truth. We thank you, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.